Well, good morning. Thank the Lord for bringing us together for another week to submit our minds now to His Word. I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 7. Gospel of John chapter 7. Ryan led us in the Sunday school hour through, I think it was 44 chapters of Genesis. We'll be in 10 verses for the rest of our time here this morning. So the first 10 verses of John 7. And what we're doing this morning is we're going to continue following the narrative. We're following it through these opening 10 verses. You may notice already, if you're looking at the text, that in verse 2, we have come now, chronologically, we've come to the Feast of Booths. This is one of the annual Jewish feasts. Uh, the end of last chapter, the end of chapter 6, was taking place during the Passover. And now it's the Feast of Booths. So what that means is that uh, in verse 1, John is skipping through six months of activity. As he tells us, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. Six months go by. He hits the fast-forward button. And where is he going to hit play again? Where is he going to stop the fast-forwarding and get back uh, to specific narration? It would make a lot of sense if he is fast-forwarding us and he hits play right when Jesus shows up at the Feast of Booze celebration down in Jerusalem. That's eventful. That would make sense. And he is going to tell us about that starting in verse 10. But that's not where he stops the fast-forwarding. Instead, he hits play in time for us to hear this one conversation between Jesus and his brothers, it will tell us. Literally, his half-brothers. And as we read here in just a moment, there might be a question that occurs to you as we're hearing this interaction. The question might be, why? Why not just bring us right to the events of the feast in Jerusalem? Why does he include this interaction between Christ and his brothers? What I hope that we can see this morning is that this, this conversation between them speaks volumes about Jesus' intentions in the world and really about Jesus' relationship to the world. It is some of the content of what his brothers exhibit, some assumptions about. They'll say in verse 4, show yourself to the world. They think they understand him. And this morning, in a number of ways, what it will do is it will give us the opportunity to hear Jesus say more about how he relates to the world that he has entered as the love of God come to save. Let's begin by hearing the passage. I'll read the first 10 verses from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. John's Gospel continues in this way. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, 
My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Even from verse 1, we see in Jesus something on display that has been on display the entire gospel. We see him acting with what we could call care and strategy, don't we? He's unwilling to go down into Judea because the Jews are seeking to kill him. He makes decisions based on uh, the circumstances in terms of his movements and his actions. And it's something for us to think about as we begin to look at this text. What it says that such a thing is necessary. It was some time ago now that we were in that famous passage, John 3.16. God loved the world by sending Jesus into it. We could think about what it says that God in Christ is loving the world. And yet that Jesus is having to act with such care and strategy in his mission. As the Father leads him, he is doing so in strategic ways. God loved the world by sending Jesus to it. And so here he is in the world as the manifestation of God's offer of love. And how is he received by that world? Well, the big answer is he isn't. We've seen this Already, John 1, verses 10 and 11, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. John three nineteen, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Can't we hear even in that? Jesus' statement here, the world hates me because I testify that its deeds are evil. So that's the big answer. How how was he received by this world he has come into? He isn't. But we know, and we saw even last week, that's not the only answer. I just read John 1.10. Think of how that passage continued. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So he's coming into the world as God's love to the world. And while the world will reject him, yet some of the world will come to him. Some will believe in his name. We know now, we've seen in a number of places in chapter 6, the point being made that there are some among mankind that the Father has given to the Son. And he enters the world to come and chase down those lost sheep and rescue them. Well, our text this morning gives us some helpful insight into Jesus' relationship to the world in all of what what we're describing. We could say it puts some flesh on the question of how it is that Jesus enters this world and seeks and saves those who belong to him. 
And we'll see this, really, we'll see two details overall. There are some things amid each of them, but we'll see two details in these ten verses that will structure our time for this morning. And they will require you to sort of keep up a bit because they won't go neatly from verse 1 to verse 10. But the first detail that, that we need to notice as we're encountering this conversation between Jesus and his brothers, it relates to his brothers. Uh, it relates to the relationship that he has with those that he's come to save in the world. And we could say this, uh, what we find here is that it is right to say that Jesus saves those whom he saves. He saves them out of the world. Here is an interaction between Jesus and his brothers. Verse 3, so his brothers said to him. These are his earthly brothers. The sons of Mary and Joseph. They're named for us in Mark 6.3. There are four of them. James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And it's a little bit of a spoiler, I suppose, but it's good to know from the outset this morning that the Bible seems to tell us that they all become believers. They all come to know Jesus as their Lord. That can be a little bit hard to be certain of because when the Bible speaks about his brothers, well, the word brothers often can mean spiritual brothers, right, and not blood brothers. So it can be difficult to be certain. But it seems that there's a group of people that the New Testament calls the brothers of Jesus that are distinguished from other Christ followers. I'll give you a couple of examples. 1 Corinthians 9, 5, Paul asks the question, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord? Seems to be pointing to specific people and saying, you know these guys, they have wives. In the book of Acts, Acts 1.14, after the 11 remaining apostles are named, Luke says this, All these with one accord were, devo were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. This seems to be describing his brothers' brothers. They have come to become his disciples. We know certainly that his brother James becomes a believer. He becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. The latter part of Acts makes that very clear. But the point here is that we seem to learn that this is a group of blood relatives to Jesus that wind up coming to have faith in him, not just as the Messiah, but as their Messiah. And I point that out here in the first 10 verses of John 7 so that we can notice that as Jesus speaks to them here, he makes plain that that is currently not the case, doesn't he? He is speaking to a group here whom he identifies as representatives of the world. Hear how he describes them in verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. This is a group of people he can look at in the eye and say, the world can't hate you. He will say later on in John 15, 19, he'll say to his disciples these words, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. What does that say about the world's love and the world's hatred? He says to these men here in this chapter, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. 
So what does this tell us about his brothers here? It tells us plainly, these men are of the world. And yet, we know that they will come to faith. And that when they do come to faith, Jesus' words in John 17 will be true of them. Blake read some of this for us at the beginning. You might turn here just for a moment. Oh, back over to John 17. I'll read verses 6 to 9. This may sound familiar now. Jesus is praying to his Father. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Listen to verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Go down to verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So, chapter 7, these brothers of Jesus are of the world. They belong to the world. They are loved by the world as its own. But later, as true disciples, they are those who are not of the world, and thus they are hated by the world. Now, what does all of that mean? Well, it means something terribly important about Jesus as the love of God come into the world. What does that look like? What is the effect? How does he work as he comes and saves? And there's a number of ways that we could describe what we're seeing here. It means that what Jesus does as he enters the world is he takes some of its people and he rescues them. And in rescuing them, he so changes them that it becomes true to say of them that they don't even belong to it anymore. That's what he does. Those who belong to the world, he comes and he rescues them. And when he's finished, they don't even belong to it anymore. Another way to say it could be, this means that God does not love the world in a way that lets the world remain as it is. When God's love reaches the, we could put it in terms of the people, when God's love reaches the worldly, it transforms the worldly. That's what it does. But look, this also means, in terms of where we are in space and time in John chapter 7, this also means that until Christ saves them, until they are given eyes to see and they repent of their sin and put their trust on the Lord Jesus Christ, until he saves them, they remain truly and accurately identified as belonging to the world. That's the first thing for us to see this morning. Jesus loves the world by saving men and women out of the world. Not out of it in the sense of of, uh, exposure to it, but in the sense of belonging to it. Now, we can stay on that, but build upon it as we continue to look at our text in front of us. There's another thing that we see here about Jesus' relationship to the world. The second thing we see is that all of what we've just described, Jesus does this. He enters into the world as God's love to the world, 
and he accomplishes what he came to do, he does it in a way that reflects a perfect obedience to a foreordained plan of God. And in terms of understanding what we find here in verses 1 to 10, this is very important. One of the reasons it's important is because it makes sense of something that has caused people to scratch their heads a little bit. Maybe you scratched your head a bit as we read verse 8 and verse 10. Verse 8, Jesus says, You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Verse 10, But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. So what just happened here? Did he just lie to them? Is he deceiving them? How are we to understand what he's saying here? I don't think that's at all what he's doing. But I think that understanding this second point relieves us of the confusion. Because it relieves us of the reason that we might feel confused. This is simply a matter of hearing him rightly, understanding the point that he's making about his timing and about his decision making. As he is walking through his uh, his purposes of redemption, how is this happening in the experience of our Lord? And I would suggest to you this morning that Jesus is simply saying this, that not only has he not come with the goals and the purposes that his brothers are implying that he has, but that as opposed to that, that what's happening is he is walking through his ministry in complete submission to his heavenly Father as he is being led by the Holy Spirit. This is what they do not understand at all as they're urging him on a particular path that seems very intelligent to them. They don't realize that he is walking through his ministry in complete submission to his Father. The, the operative element in what we're about to say is to understand, really, the distinction he's making in verse 6. If we understand verse 6, verses 8 and 10 are not confusing. He says in verse 6, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Now, what, what does he mean by that? And to get an answer, we have to notice what it is they've been encouraging him to do. Verse 3, his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. These have been a busy last six months. They've been seeing a lot of things. And their complaint is, you're in podunk Galilean villages. Go down to Judea. Go to Jerusalem. Surely you're doing this because you want to be received by the world. So you're in the wrong place, Jesus. Go make a name for yourself. Show these things to the big crowds in Jerusalem. World fame awaits you. It's not that they don't know that he's been there already. I'm sure that they do. But this in particular was the opportune time to do that. If this is what Jesus is intending. This is the time. The the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that the Feast of Booths was actually the most popular of the Jewish feasts. The most people would go to Jerusalem for this feast. This is the chance. They assume that he wants what they would want if they were him. Never mind the slew of details of his life up to this point that would suggest otherwise. Never mind that he was born 
not in a palace or in Jerusalem, but in a barn in a remote village in Galilee, witnessed to by animals and some shepherds. Never mind that his first miracle was performed at a private wedding party and not even recognized except by the servants of that wedding party. Never mind that he has just had a small army at his disposal and promptly driven them away with his hard sayings. Never mind that. They are convinced that he wants the reception of the world. And in verse 6, he makes two statements in reply. The first thing he says is, he says, my time has not yet come. And that sounds a lot like what he said to his mother Mary in John chapter 2, but it's not what he said to his mother. Uh, he used the word hour there. My hour has not yet come. And that is a, an expression that is used many times in it's always referring specifically to the glory of his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. That's not what he's describing here. He uses the, the word, a particular word for time here that is about quality and not quantity. So what he's saying is, it is not the suitable time for me to go. There is a suitable time. Isn't that what's implied then? There is a suitable time for me to go, and now is not it. But by contrast, he says, your time is always here. There is no right or wrong time for you to go down to the Feast of Booths, to go down to Jerusalem, and that is because I am on divine mission in my going, and you are not. And verse 7 then actually explains why verse 6 is true. Verse 6, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Not yet. So notice as we're hearing him, He's not saying that he is never going. He's saying that he's not going now. Now is not yet the suitable time for him. That's principle here. There's, there's another reality as well that some have noticed, and I think it's fair. Uh, they're, they're advising him to go down in time to keep the feast. He has no intention of going and doing that. And even though he will travel after this, he gets there in the middle of the, of the feast. He positions himself to make several key statements. He's not going to observe the feast, even. But what he's saying specifically here is, the timing for me to go is not for you to decide, and it's not for me to decide. There is a suitable time for me. Someone described it well this way. They said, Jesus' response to his brothers is not that he is planning to stay in Galilee forever, but that because his life is regulated by his heavenly Father's appointments, he is not going to the feast when they say he should. His not turns down his brother's request. It does not promise that he will not go to the feast when his father sanctions the trip. Now, I find that striking and maybe much more important than we might notice at first glance in terms of what this tells us about how Jesus walked his way through his public ministry. It would seem from what Jesus says here about those brothers and the irrelevance of their timing. My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. I mean, think about it this way. It, it would seem that that would mean 
that when the love of God reaches us here in the person of Christ, when he rescues us out from worldliness, it would seem that one of the things he's doing is rescuing us from a kind of futility, from a kind of cosmic insignificance. Now, that's a statement that needs to be qualified. It's not true in every way that it could be taken. It most certainly is true that God uses all things for his own purposes, isn't it? His own ends. Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. Which that's a terrifying statement of its own. But it makes something very clear. God has created and appointed everything for its particular purpose. Jesus is not questioning that at all. But what his statement does is it forces a certain reality upon us. In fact, I think it's the same reality that's forced upon us by one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 127, which begins like this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. That's the sort of, of reality that is being put to these unbelieving brothers. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 celebrates the fact that God has appointed a season for every activity. There's a time for everything. But it's as if Jesus says to his brothers, you who belong to the world and think and act as the world thinks and acts. For you, any time is right. Why? Because you're not with me. You're building a house that the Lord is not building. So it doesn't make any difference. When you do these things. D.A. Carson puts it very strikingly. He says, it's almost as if they are being excluded from divine sovereignty. Not that God suspended his providential reign in their case, but that what they did was utterly without significance as far as God is concerned. And that means everything to us. This is what might prove terribly significant in your life and in mine this morning. Because what this means is that submission to the will of the Father is the, the quintessential element of what it means to use time well. What part of our life does that not touch? Submission to the will of the Father is the right and proper use of time. It may be that in our Western American context that often there is no higher value than the virtue of using time well. We, we live in a time of never-ending publications of how to work efficiently books, uber-scheduled lifestyles, all of that. And even these brothers, I mean, that's their concern. There, there is this a sort of concern for efficiency, isn't it? Maximize, Jesus, maximize. And his reply is, the best choice of timing is timing that aligns with the will and direction of my heavenly Father. Because I do all that I do in obedience to his will. But you, your whole trajectory is in accord with 
that great divine enemy called the world. The world, as John's gospel names and describes it, this system of rebellion against God. Your whole trajectory is in accord with the world. So it makes no difference at all when you go down to Jerusalem. I've suggested that we're learning something here about our Lord's relationship to the world. And specifically here, what we're learning has to do with manner. The manner in which Jesus lived in this world and navigated his time in it. What was that manner? It certainly was not haphazard. That's been obvious. But neither was it pragmatic. It was not pragmatism that drove the decisions and the patterns and the paths of our Lord. There was a perfect timing in all that he did. How often do we read things in the Gospels like, his time had not yet come, and thus he didn't do this, he didn't allow that to happen. But we have to understand, a statement like that only makes any sense if Jesus is walking a path that God prepared beforehand and that he is being obedient to. Now, with the time left this morning, I would ask a a final question regarding all of these details, but in particular, this this last one about the way that Jesus walked and the the significance of walking in the will of his Father. The question I would ask is one of, you could say, application. What are we to do with this information? Is there some response to it that's appropriate from us? Is it the kind of thing that is expecting some sort of action for us to take as a result? Or a lesson that we're to learn and to put into practice? And and the answer I would give to that is the answer, that very satisfying answer, no and yes. No and yes. There's a no and a yes, I would suggest. Let's do the no answer first. The, The item of greatest significance here in what we're seeing as our Lord speaks like this and reveals this, isn't something we're supposed to respond to in action. The truly ultimate thing for us to realize here as we watch our Lord is that he's doing this as the Son of Man, the God-Man, as the Messiah, as the Redeemer. He's doing for us what we couldn't and wouldn't do for ourselves. He's doing what has always been required He is submitting himself perfectly to the will of God. Oh, finally. Since Genesis chapter 3, we've been waiting. Finally, here is one representing mankind who perfectly submits himself to the will of his heavenly Father. So the primary response to that from us isn't be like Jesus, but rather stand back and watch in awe. As Jesus perfectly submits to the Father's plans and purposes, he's going to say in John 17, 4, praying to his Father, he's going to say, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. We don't hear him here, we don't hear him there and nod our heads with our notebooks in hand and say, okay, that's how to do it. Okay, I'll take it from here. There's no such thing. We respond to that with rest. We rest our eternal security and our existence 
on the fact that Jesus accomplished this in my stead as I am united to him by faith alone. So in that way, the question, am I to do something with this, gets a no answer, and the no answer probably deserves priority if we have to say these in a certain order. The second answer is a yes answer, and it's terribly important as well. That resting in the no answer, that watching, worshiping, thanking, resting, doesn't mean that we aren't being informed as we watch him about how we define things like value or worthwhile living. And especially if we live in the kind of world, the kind of time that I've described that really prizes things like efficiency, we have to see that this passage impacts our definitions. We will always choose and live and think and act out of our preconceived definitions of things. What is, what is it that I think is important, is worthwhile? What am I supposed to be here for? Based on our answers to those questions, we're going to do everything that we do. And I'm suggesting here that as we watch Jesus and hear him, we are having potentially our definitions redefined. What this means, what Jesus' statements here mean, is that to use my time in a way or even to come to think about time, to come to think about the minutes I'm given in this life in a way that chooses to value supremely submission to God. That is what it means to use my time well. That's how well, good use of time is defined. And it seems to me that a very reasonable way to imagine how the picture that John's given us here might shape the paths of our choices, the path of our very lives, is to notice one simple thing, and it's this. If, if the distinction we've seen here between Jesus and his brothers, Jesus who cared about God's will and unbelievers who don't, if that distinction meant that their lives, their choices, their timings were going to be on different paths, and isn't that plain from what Jesus is saying here? He's on a fundamentally different path than they are at this moment. If the distinction between him and them puts them on different paths in their lives, why would it not be the same for us? How could it be anything different? As Christians, it's simply true by definition that the path of our lives will not look the same as the path of those who do not know or love God. It won't. How can it? Can you see that that must be true by necessity? We have been given new hearts to cherish the Lord Jesus Christ. We are those that are described in 2 Corinthians 5.15 with these words, Christ died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him for whom, who for their sake died and was raised. We no longer live for ourselves. How could that possibly mean we're on the same path? We no longer express the kind of driving desires that Jesus' brothers assume here and that they reveal in themselves by their encouragements. That's very true in general. And that general truth means real, real things in our life today. It means, for example, that we will not be a people 
whose husbands and fathers, whose wives and mothers sacrifice their own families on the altar of personal achievement and success. We won't. We will not be a people who choose to marry unbelievers. Not only for the simple reason that our God has commanded us not to, but also because the purpose of our very lives has changed. It's to chase after Christ. And why on earth would I tie my life for the rest of my life together with someone who hates the one I love the most? We will not be a people who think, live, choose, feel out of a worldly, gripping, controlling terror of our own impending death. Because we define value itself by the measure of the pleasure of God, the God who has numbered our days, and the God whose presence we know that death is only going to bring us into. Hebrews 2.15 says that Christ has delivered all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. That suggests a difference in the lives of those that he has saved, that he has delivered. Examples could go on and on and on, couldn't they? Not that any of those things are easy or simple. They are certainly not easy. And they're the stuff that involve constant temptations all of our lives, don't they? But when we watch Jesus interact in places like this, what we're finding is that those battles are the right ones for us to fight. They're the right ones. Those are the right and proper ways that we follow after our Lord, that we pick up our cross and follow him. Because they are choices about a particular path of life. And we have said, I have been rescued out of the world. I am heaven-bound, and I am following my Lord Jesus on his path as he submitted himself to the will of the Father. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul describes the ways that his love for Christ has entirely upended his life. I mean, it's upended his priorities, his definitions about what matters and what is valuable, it's completely changed all of the definitions of all the things. It's upended him. And it's quite a list as he goes through how this has changed things. It's the kind of list, in fact, that we can read and say, I'm never going to get there. You ever feel that as you're reading Paul's descriptions in Philippians 3? If you do, then you need to keep reading, because Apparently, Paul isn't claiming that it describes him perfectly either. He's describing what is true. He's not always describing how he lives in the midst of that truth. And I would invite you to turn here with me, Philippians 3, starting in verse 12, and we'll end with this this morning. And I'd encourage you, as I read, to notice his reasoning. This is simply what it is to be a Christian. It is the life that is given to those who Christ has made his own. Philippians 3, 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, 
Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we both praise you and ask of you this morning as your people. You are wise, you are faithful and mighty, and you have been good to your people. We ask you to grant us a renewed sense of Christ as our Sabbath rest. And Lord, if there be paths that we're walking in our lives that are the world's paths, we ask the only thing that a Christian could ask at that realization. Father, grant us repentance. Give us the wisdom and strength to turn, to retrace our steps, and in so doing, to live in light of the Lord Jesus Christ, who loves us, who has numbered our days in this life, and who has earned for us endless days in your presence. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ this morning, and we pray to you in his name. Amen.